Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you today. We got a little bit going on up here today, huh? <laughs> hey, church, it is so good to be with you today. When you woke up today, you probably at some point took a look in one of these. You probably gazed in the mirror at some point. Even those of you who are joining us at home, probably from, even those of you who are still in your jammies at home, at some point you glanced in the mirror. And why do we do that? Now, for some of us, that's the wrong inflection. For some of us, it's like, why do I do that? Right? It's like you look in and you're like, man, that's just a sad, disappointing reminder that I'm not as I once was. Yeah. Play the hand you're dealt. So <clears throat> why do we look in the mirror? What does it do for us? Well, it shows us a reflection, right? It reflects the image of our body. It gives us a reflection, an image reflected. So when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see the thumbprints of a holy God? Do you see complexity so marvelous and so incredible that it points you to the fact that there could only be a designer, a creator? Do you see the thumbprints of God? Do you see the markings, the traces of the divine and the divine beauty in your life? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? When we get to Genesis chapter 1, early on, we read that God created us, human beings, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created all of us. We bear his image. God created us in his image. That's the way the story begins. That's the way our story begins. That's the way your story begins. That we have the image of God stamped upon us, hard-pressed into us. So when we get to the Exodus story that we sang of just a moment ago with God leading us from Egypt, when we get to that part in the story of Scripture, the story of humanity, where God is taking his people from Egypt, a land that for them was slavery and death, and he's leading them to a new place, a place of life and freedom. And along that journey, God pauses his people and he gives them what we call the Ten Commandments. We're wrapping up a series on that today. These top 10 commands he's given his people. But it's really God's heart for them. And the first one is don't put any other God in front of me. Have no other gods. For I am the only God who will love you and serve you. If you serve me, then you will experience life as it should be. As it's intended to be. Life full, complete, and beautiful. And the second command he gives... He says this, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Make no image of anything up there in the sky, down here on the earth, or way down, down, deep, deep, deep in the waters. Make no image of that. And certainly don't worship that. You must not bow down to those things or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection or any other gods. God leads them on this path. He's taking them from slavery to freedom. And he says, make no image of anything else. Don't bow down to any other idol. He's simply reminding them and reminding us of our sacred place in the story. 
the sacred space that we all hold in our connection with God and one another. He says, don't make an image. Why? Because you are the image. That don't make an image with your hands. Don't, don't try to craft something with your own hands because I have already made you with my hands. You are crafted, created by God in his image. He says, so don't get things out of order. Don't miss the point. Don't make something else to bow down to. You are the image that bows. Don't make an image to worship, but be the image that worships God. That's our part in this story. Our role is simply to reflect, as a mirror, to reflect the image of God. To demonstrate God's picture, God's image to this world, to one another. That's the part we have. That's really what worship is. Whenever you come across that word worship in the Bible or in church or anywhere, that's really all worship is. is True worship is to reflect the image of God. To reflect the character, the compassion, the heart of Jesus, our Savior. To reflect him to one another. So that means that whenever you demonstrate grace, whenever you forgive, whenever you show love, whenever you offer compassion, whenever you show generosity, whenever you defend the weaker person, whenever you defend truth, whenever you offer yourself humbly in service to another person, you are reflecting the divine image in your life, as it should be. So how do we do with that? Do do we do that well? Because that's what God has called us to do, to be his image bearers, to reflect his image. And so on this topic of not having an idol, how are we doing with the idolatry, with idol worship? My guess is you probably don't have a little totem that you've carved out of wood and carry in your pocket. You probably don't have some image you carry around and bow down to and stop several times a day and pray to. You probably don't have a room in your house set up with some carved image and all the chairs pointed to that. You bow down or carpets leaning there to, to worship some image. We probably think of those things as being for those other people in different lands, different places, different religions, bowing down before false gods. We tend to think that we do pretty good with the idolatry. We've got that one down. But maybe our definition of idolatry is too narrow. Let me just help us understand when the Bible says don't make an idol, when it says avoid idolatry, what it's really getting at. See, an idol is anything or anyone that replaces Jesus at the center of our lives. An idol is any created thing that takes the creator's place in your life. An idol is what you turn to instead of turning to God to cope to find your joy, to find satisfaction, to get what you want, to get what you think you need. That's what an idol is. In short, an idol is anything or anyone that gets your attention and your affection more than God. Anything or anyone that gets your attention, your affection more than God does. That's what an idol is. So by that definition, we're all wrestling with this and probably most of us not faring too well with this a lot of times. Think about where your time goes. Think about where your excitement goes. Think about where your money goes, where your passions go, your energy and sweat where they go, your encouragement where it goes. Think about just where the energy in your life goes. Wherever those things are pointing to, that thing is the idol for you. 
that that thing is the counterfeit God in your life. And it might be more than one. Whatever's getting all that attention, all that energy from you, is the thing that's competing with God for authority in your life. This is what Jesus was hinting at. His friend Mark, or Mark refers to this this way. He quotes Jesus and saying, and Jesus was quoting the Old Testament here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Take a look at this word that keeps showing up. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Quick spiritual assessment. Who's getting your all? What's getting your all? All of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How are we doing with that? See, either it's going to be Jesus, it's going to be something else, someone else. Think of it this way. In your life, in your heart, there is a throne. Like there is a central part to your life. You have a throne at the center of your heart. And whatever is seated on that throne is the thing you worship. It's the thing that gets your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, your affections, your attention, your energy, your sweat, your mind. It's what gets it all. So whatever is on that throne is your God. And that might be your idol. Friend, what are the things in your life competing for that throne? What are the things in your life that compete for the attention and the affection of your heart. What are the things in your life that are competing for your worship? Now, in just a moment, we're going to explore what some of those things might be. And usually, for most people, it's not the dark stuff, not the evil stuff. It's not the grandiose sin. For some, it is. For some, it, it, it might be those you know, highlight kind of sin real things that we'll talk about. But for most of us, most of the time, it's actually good things that have just been given too much status in our life. For, for most of us, it's, it's not bad things. It's good things that we've given too much status. Bad things might creep in there, but usually it's the good stuff that we have put in the wrong place. We have a disordered life, a disordered heart. We've got things out of order and we're, we're bowing down to the wrong things. We've taken good things and we've elevated them to too high of a status and turned them into godlike things that become idols to us. Now, as we start addressing some of these, and there's no way we could talk about all of them. I mean, there's thousands of things that would compete for our attention, our affection, Thousands of things that would compete for our worship. We're just going to talk about some broad categories today. But as we do, we just need to get it on the table. This is sensitive. The things that have become idols to us are the things that we turn to to help us cope with the difficulties of life. They're the things we turn to for our joy. They're the things that we celebrate. They're the things that have a hold on us. So they're deeply personal and they're deeply ingrained. And it's not like we have a, like one day we have a sermon, we say, oh, we've got to change these things around and boom, yeah, it's done. I said a prayer, it's all good. Now I'm just going, no, 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 no. Listen, this is one of the most difficult parts of following Jesus. This is the whole idea of reordering our lives every single day to ensure that Christ is still on the throne. Because these things will take turns competing with that throne competing with Jesus for the throne. And so it's a daily activity of surrendering again to Jesus. It's a daily activity of saying, God, here I am surrendered to you. And it's hard. 
Because like I say, these are good things. What we're about to talk about are things that matter to us, things that we love. And to surrender it, I just want to invite you in. I'm going to invite you to humbly explore the things in your life that might be competing with God for the central authority in your life. So let's begin to unpack what some of these things might be. We have a throne in our life. What is it that is sitting on the throne for you? Is it food? I mean, food's a good thing. That's a necessary thing. It sustains us, right? By the way, if you're going to have Doritos, Cool Ranch is really the only way to go. All right? Just, just going to get that out there. You know, so, you know, a lot of us, we would treat a troubled soul as though it's a growling stomach. We turn to the fridge or the pantry, the snack drawer, if you've got one, to try and soothe an aching soul. And we just turn to it more and more and more. Now, Listen, I, I want to make sure we understand that our, our weight scales and our physiques, they don't tell the whole story. You can look decent on the outside, like you'd have a decent metabolism, and you can still be a glutton at heart. So maybe food is one of the things that competes in your life. But maybe it's, it's a claim and it's accomplishments. It's, it's that, that degree, that diploma, that certificate at work, that that thing you've accomplished that says, I'm somebody now. And, and maybe it's finding your satisfaction, your meaning in that. That that's how you define yourself. Maybe it's, it's money. Now, my wallet doesn't have any money in it. I have three teenagers, one of them about to go to college. You know where my money goes. But <laughs> maybe it's money. Maybe it's how we spend our money, trying to purchase our satisfaction, trying to purchase our joy, trying to spend our way out of pain at times. Could money be the idol in your life? Maybe it's a phone. Maybe we do have an idol that we carry in our pocket. Now again, this is not a bad thing. A phone is not an evil thing. A phone is just neutral. It's what we do with it. It's good or bad. And I've seen with all of these you know, on, on the phone, I mean, on my phone, I've got Bible apps, I've got prayer apps, it, my phone helps me connect with friends, it's, it's really good and useful. It could also have a lot of junk on there, a lot of time wasters. The research tells us that the average American right now will spend about three and a half hours per day on their phone. Add that up to the end of a year, you've spent about 50 days on your phone. If you live to be 75 you'll have spent about a decade, a little over a decade of your life staring at this tiny little screen. And maybe not all of it for bad, but at the end of your days, where do you want your days to go? Facebook, TikTok, games, news apps? Has it become an idol for you? Does it get more of your attention than God does? When the phone buzzes, do you chase it in the same way that when the Holy Spirit pings your heart, you would pause and be attentive to him? Oh, sport, sport, yeah. Earlier this year, 
I stood out in the rain, a cold, cold March rain, at a track meet for my son. And I stood there for hours, one of his races towards the beginning, one of them towards the end. And I waited the entire time in the cold rain, standing. I couldn't sit because then even more of me would be wet, right? The bleachers were wet. So I just stood in the rain for three hours. I thought to myself, this is dumb. <laughs> I love my son. Well, what am I doing? And then two weeks later, same scenario, but a little bit different. It was hot, like blistering hot, no shade. I forgot the umbrella. Luckily, I had a hat, but man, it was hot, like literally burning my skin hot. And there I was, sweating, burning, uncomfortable for a few hours to watch a couple minutes of running, like three minutes total, maybe. And it dawned on me, would I do that for church? If we had to have church outside, would I stand in the cold rain to worship? Would I stand in the blistering sun and sweat? Hmm. I'm just telling you how I wrestle. I, I wonder, you know, there, there are those who will say, "Yeah, oh, fits, 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 but, but sport is good, and I agree. I love sport. I'm a fan of sports. I watch them. I, I used to coach. Uh, my family, my kids are involved in sports. We're a sport family. We're an active family. I think sport is good. The teamwork, the exercise, the, the physical stuff you get from it, learning how to lose, learning how to win, all of it with dignity. There's a lot of good. Sport is really good. It can also become an idol. It can be an idol for us. Well, like I wonder what would happen if, if one of those Hebrews from the time that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, Moses still glowing with the radiance of God, having been in the presence of God. He has the Ten Commandments, and he begins to speak these commands, speak God's heart over God's people. If one of the Hebrews who was there that day hearing those commands was somehow transported from that time and place to, say, one of our college football games, what would that Hebrew think? If he were to show up on his way to the game, and he sees people dressed like animals and all dressed in the same colors, faces painted, some of them chests painted, and they're, they're slaughtering their animals. Well, hopefully the animals have already been slaughtered, but they're sacrificing their animals on the grills and barbecuing them at the tailgate parties. And then you walk into the place, and this stadium full of people, two different colors of, of uniforms competing, and the people are chanting, and they're yelling things, and the bands are playing, so there's music, and there's, there's chants, and they're trying to affect the outcome of this game. With this Hebrew look and say, there are two gods at war here. What a strange way to worship. Would it seem like idolatry? Now, again, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy and have fun. But I am saying we need to check our hearts, what gets more of our time, our attention, our affection. How do we approach these things? Maybe for some, it's entertainment, movies, music. How many of our homes have a room dedicated just for the TV, just for the movies. All the chairs organized not for interaction with humans, but interaction with a screen. Might that Hebrew, if he were to walk into that home, think, oh, what a strange idol, this flat screen that shows pictures. Again, it can be good. It's not an evil thing. It's a neutral thing. But we got to be careful of the place we give it in our hearts. 
sometimes we follow the people from those trains, or maybe from different stages, some of the musicians, but maybe some of the movie stars. We, we tend to bow down before some of those people, don't we? We want their autographs. We want to sound like them, look like them, dress like them. We'd love just to get the chance to meet them. We need to be careful of what sits on the throne in here. For some of us, for some of us, maybe the idol is sex. You're really curious what's about to come out of the box, aren't you? <laughs> it's Sunday morning at church. Like, clean it up a little bit, right? Censor that one. Again, not a bad thing. In fact, I think all the married people in the room say, beautiful gift from God, Amen. Yeah, (laughs) some emphatically, I like that. (laughs) Great gift from God when it is in the right boundaries and the way God designed it to work for us as a gift to us. But man, we take it outside of those boundaries and it becomes a destructive force in our lives. It can own us, it can own our thoughts and our actions and our money and it can wreck our relationships. And man, something so beautiful and good, if we put it in the wrong spot, becomes just just a destroyer, just a thief of what it's supposed to give. For some of us, maybe it's family. You say, wait, 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 wait. Family's good. Like the church talks about family. We have family ministries here at the church, right? Yeah, family's good. Gift from God. But if elevated to the wrong spot, it really gets things out of whack. Like, do you love your kids? Do you champion your kids more than your spouse? Do you love and give attention to your spouse more than you do to your God? That doesn't mean we're supposed to love our family, our kids, our spouse any less. It just means we need to love them maybe differently. That they're not the all-important thing in life. In fact, I would contend that when we love God most, we will love everyone else best. When we love God most, we'll, especially the people closest to us, we'll love them better. We'll love them the way God has designed this thing to work. We'll love them the way they're intended to be loved, and we'll actually elevate them in better ways in that way. But we can be well-intentioned, and we get that out of order, and we try to love them. Maybe even we don't even think about it. We just put so much more time and energy and focus on our family than we do on God. And when we do that, we will wreck those relationships. We can wreck those people. We can wreck ourselves because that's not how God intended it. When we love God first and most, we'll love everybody else best. For some of us, and this one can be challenging, so stick with me here. Maybe our politics and our patriotism. For some people, it's politics and anti-patriotism these days. It's a whole lot of our time, a whole lot of our attention, a whole lot of our affection. Politics, not bad. In fact, the Bible implores us to be an informed, involved citizenry. That, that we should take part in what's going on in our government. We should take part in what's going on in our culture and our nation. We should speak into that, seeking to be a force of good as individuals and collectively as the church. And we should know what's happening and where it's going. We should vote. We should be involved. But for some, it can become an idol. For some, how much time we spend watching and reading and exploring all of those things far overshadows how much time we spend interacting with God and his people or interacting with people about God. We can wear the names of the politician on our chest, put it in our yard, slap a sticker on our car, scroll through our Facebook pages and our Instagram, 
And it's easy to see that we are evangelists for a politician, sometimes treating those people as de facto saviors, that what they can do as a politician is to fix all the ills in society, to do things that honestly only God can do, and God desires to do it through us, through the church, the things that we should be up to. Sometimes we put on the politician. It's not bad to vote. It's not bad to be engaged and involved. But do we spend more time promoting politicians and political ideologies and political parties than we do talking about our Savior and engaging in conversations that will last eternally? That may be an idol for some of us. This last one's probably the most shocking. So let me explain. You're looking and say, wait, whoa, is that a Bible? Like, how does a Bible become an idol? I mean, the Bible's the word of God. It's, you know, it's the breath of God for us. It's, it's God's mouth opened up. We open it up. These pages, the, the word of God is living and active for us. It's God's gift to us. Yes, it is for sure. But sometimes, if we're not careful, we could succumb to the natural gravitational pull of the flesh for everyone who follows God. And, and that's to become like the Pharisees. We, we can all run the risk of being people who know what is said in here and then not live accordingly to it. We, we, we can know every phrase, we can know every word, we can know every letter of it and somehow miss the author of it. We can know this and yet not know the Savior. We, we, we can know all about what's said and we can even kind of weaponize this to others and even to ourselves and let it do damage to us, missing the heart of God, missing the point of applying it and being transformed by our encounter with God, that we're not just to know this, but we're to get to know the author through this. I've heard a lot of talk in the last few decades. It's probably been there longer. I just maybe have only been listening more (laughs) in my more adult life. But all the talk of those in the church world who want to see the Ten Commandments stay on engraved stone in our courthouse lawns or stamped on metal and on plaques in our public spaces or put on posters in our classrooms. The, the funny thing is when the church is pulled at large and people are asked if they can recite the Ten Commandments, even amongst those who regularly go to church, we're not very good at knowing what the Ten Commandments are. But yet, we want to make sure that the Ten Commandments are everywhere in our public spaces and places. But what God says, well, one of the places we find the Ten Commandments given to us in scriptures in Deuteronomy 5, and the very next thing we see in Deuteronomy 6 is God says, now engrave these commands, not on stone, not on posters, not on metal, engrave it on your hearts. That these commands would be so ingrained in who you are that the place the people will see it lived out the place that they will know what these commands are is when you reflect my character, when you reflect these things out of who you are. That, that, that's God's design for us. That his character and his commands would be engraved in our lives. And we wouldn't need to worry about what's on the courthouse lawn or what's in the classroom wall or what's in the public places. That As long as we're there and wherever we are, people will see these commands and everything else lived out, that they will see the character of God demonstrated in us as we seek to reflect the heart, the character of God. 
Now the challenge is and the problem is that we've allowed all these good things to take a place that they don't deserve. Again, none of these things are bad. Some of these things are really, really good. But when we allow them to sit on the throne where Jesus alone should be, those good things become really destructive things in our lives. Those good things can take a place that does damage to us. Proverbs 4.23 compels us that above all else, that's a big deal, above everything else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Here's what he means. Guard it from allowing all these things onto the throne. Those things can take up residence in your life, but none of them should be on the throne. Because when that happens, then we're stuck with the fact that the one who should be on the throne has no room to sit that when all of that stuff has taken the primary place in our life, Jesus is somehow left sitting on the floor. May it never be. Now again, this isn't like, oh, I recognize that, let's deal with it, I'm good, I'm done. This is a daily struggle for all of us. Because life will compete with God. The things of this world will compete with God. And the beautiful truth is, it, like our salvation is not so much bound up in this. We follow God and we wrestle with this stuff. Praise God that Jesus is king, he is savior, and our salvation is wrapped up not in what we do, but in who he is and what he has done for us. Amen, church? But yet, for us to live in the joy and the freedom that he wants to give us. Remember how these commands were given to us. God was taking his people from a place of slavery and moving them towards freedom. And he says, don't bow to the idols because they'll steal your freedom from you. Don't bow to the image. It'll rob you of what I want you to have. And of who I've called you to be. And the reality for every single one of us is that we've broken this command. And we have broken lives because of it. That the idols that we've allowed to get into the wrong spot have broken us. And so as a reflection of God, we have a distorted image, a broken image. That what is to be a clear, beautiful reflection of our Savior, of our God. It's broken. Now the great news is we have a Savior who will put us back together. And we'll have a Savior who takes all that bent, refracted light and does something beautiful with it and restores us to the way we are intended to be. But he invites us into that process. So to be restored and to reflect his image the way he has intended means we have some heart work to do. We have to identify the idols in our lives. And we've got to begin the hard work of surrendering them to God, of putting those things on the altar and saying, God, it's yours, I surrender it to you. And if you give it back to me in some way, that's great. And if not, you and you alone are God and you and you alone will be on the throne. And and church, if you wanna know if something is an idol in your life, just begin to give it up or give it away. Fast from food and take a break. Instead of that family vacation, Take the family on a mission trip. 
Take them on a serving trip to others. Reclaim your sexuality for God and for the one who he's entrusted you to give it to. Turn off the news, the media, the complaints. Make a decision to say more, to post more, to pray more about God and his church and his ways. Give away your season tickets. That's not a ploy for you to give them to me. I'll help them go to the right person if you do. Give up that Sunday afternoon game and instead bring your kid, even their sporting games. Give up the Sundays. Bring them to church. Get them connected to the student ministry. Begin giving your money away. Turn off the phone. Turn off the social media. Turn off the TV. Surrender every part of your life and determine not just to know this, but to know the author of it and to live according to what it says and invite Jesus to reclaim his rightful place on the throne of your heart at the center of your life. May we, in everything we do, declare with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our possessions, all of our affections, all of our attention, all of our energy, all of our stuff, all of our family time, with everything we have and everything we do, church, may we proclaim again and again and again that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the leader in our life, that Jesus is Savior, and that nothing else is on the throne. And may we give him that place. And don't think you got to wrestle with it alone. We're in this together. And so if you discover that some of these things have made you indebted or enslaved or addicted, we're here for you. We understand. With no judgment, with no condemnation, but with a loving arm, we're going to walk with you. But church, let's put Jesus back on the throne. Let's pray. God, I pray for any of those who are here today online or in person who are struggling, struggling with addiction or indebtedness or enslavement to the idols. God, that you would give them the courage to seek help and the courage to declare in this moment right now that you are king, that you are leader, that you are Lord, that you alone are savior. And to turn to you again. God, would you give all of us the courage to turn to you every day that when we awake we would turn to you and not to those things that when we struggle when we are looking to escape the pain of life or the stress or the problems or we're just looking to vetch out God that we would turn to you and to one another and God thank you for the beautiful image of Jesus the radiance of your glory in whom we can see you perfectly and may we as your church together reflect you as broken as we are God would you turn that into a mosaic as a beautiful refractory mirror that the world might see you Jesus thank you for being our savior and for loving us as you do take your place on our hearts amen